0: I were putting together a a puzzle on a table in the living room of the old parsonage, and I think it was the last puzzle I really, really gave any effort to. When we got down to the final pieces, you know, you've got a few left over here, it became increasingly clear that there were more holes than there were pieces. We had spent hours and hours on that puzzle, and to leave it unfinished, you know, a few pieces short of success, that really was unsatisfying. I don't like things unfinished. I'd rather leave them unstarted than undone. And that's not just jigsaw puzzles. It's true of intellectual ones as well. Don't ask me a riddle like this old one. What always runs but never walks, often murmurs, never talks, has a bed but never sleeps, has a mouth but never eats. You know that one. Don't ask me that and just leave me hanging. I want answers. I want explanations. If something doesn't make sense, I want to make sense of it. There's something in the text today that's hard to make sense of. And I suspect it didn't make much sense to the disciples either. They almost certainly wanted an explanation from Jesus, but he didn't give them one. He left them hanging. Jesus and his friends had come to Jerusalem on Sunday to the cheers of the pilgrims who were attending Passover. So this is what the day that we call the day of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Triumphal or not, five days later, Jesus was executed on the charge of leading a rebel faction. When people, including me, preach on the triumphal entry, they frequently stop with the cries of Hosanna in verse 10 and don't even mention the final verse of the section, verse 11. I think because it seems out of place. Seems so anticlimactic. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, if I had been St. Mark's editor, I would have redlined that verse and written above it unnecessary. We don't usually preach that verse, but it's important for understanding what happened next. Because the renowned Bible scholar T.W. Manson missed that? He called what happened next a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. And as it stands, he said, it's simply incredible. He didn't believe that Jesus did this. He didn't believe Jesus would do this. The action that Mark attributes to Jesus seems so completely out of character for him that Manson refused to believe he did it. So what did Jesus do? Let's read about it. This is Mark chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 12 through 15. Then we'll skip the the sandwich part of this passage and go down to verse 20 and read through verse 25. The next day as they were leaving. By the way, in the Bible when you're reading and there's something talked about and then something comes in between and then it comes back to that first thing, you always know those things are connected. That's not an accident. That's a technique and Bible writers use it often. Uh, To Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. Actually, the text in in the original language says something like, uh, "And if he would find anything on it. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, And his disciples heard him say it. Now, we'll skip down to verse 20. When evening came, they went out of the city. So they're staying in Bethany, which is like a mile or two at most from the city. They went out of the city. In the morning, as they walked along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, now you can kind of miss this if you've never been there, but if you're walking down the Mount of Olives out of Bethany, you are looking at the Temple Mount in front of you. So when Jesus says, if anyone says to this mountain, it's almost certain that he's looking at the Temple Mount. Go throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So after going to the temple and looking it over, this is Sunday night, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, he looks it all over, but he doesn't do anything. He leaves. He goes to Bethany, where his friends uh, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary live. The next morning, he heads back into the city, and the text says he was hungry. I don't know how St. Mark would have known that unless Jesus said something to his disciples. Boy, am I hungry. There are lots of fig trees around Bethany. Bethany means house of figs. So Jesus walked up to a leafy one to look it over. Fig trees bear an early and late crop, and the first crop actually begins growing before the trees have their leaves. the only tree I know of where the fruit grows before the leaves grow. By the time, usually, they get ripe, which is much later, most of the first crop of figs have fallen off the tree. Mark tells us that it wasn't the time for figs. Now, this was April. The first crop wouldn't ripen until June. Marcus giving us a big time clue that what's about to happen is not about figs, but about something else. Jesus looked the tree over, found nothing except leaves on it. A tree that didn't produce any figs during the first crop wouldn't produce figs at all. The tree looked good from a distance, leaf, leafy, green, but it was all show. Its life was used up. It wouldn't produce any fruit. So Jesus cursed it. Now that's Peter's word for it. The original language says, and answering, he answered the tree. Answering, he said to it, may no one eat fruit from you from now on until forever. And that, Mark tells us, the disciples heard. Well, of course they did. That was the whole point. He handed them a puzzle with a piece missing told them a riddle without giving them the answer. That that must have come back to their minds again and again throughout the day. It wasn't like Jesus to curse anything. He gave life. He didn't take it. And why on earth would he be angry at a fig tree for not having figs when figs weren't in season? didn't make any sense. You can be sure these things are going through the disciples' minds. Like us... They wanted an explanation. Why? Why did you do this? What's the meaning of it? Aren't we like that? We want God to reveal his grand design to us. But that's not what he does. Frederick Buechner says he doesn't reveal his grand design. He reveals himself. After cursing the fig tree, Jesus went back to Jerusalem. Now understand... He did something similar to the temple. We're used to saying that Jesus cleansed the temple, but it's more like he attacked it. You know, the Bible never says that Jesus cleansed the temple. That's something that we say, but not the Bible. It says he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. In other words, the sacrifices and wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. That doesn't sound like a spring cleaning. It sounds like a takeover. Jesus, I don't think, was cleansing the temple. He was closing it, prophetically announcing its doom. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples walked back to Bethany. The next morning, They get up, they head back into the city, they see the fig tree has died. It's withered from its roots. The fig tree, this is no accident. And the prophets in the Old Testament, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. What Jesus did at the fig tree was an enacted parable. It was a prophetic sign of judgment on Israel. It was never about figs. Now, remember on Sunday evening, Jesus entered the city, went to the temple, which was the heart of worldwide Judaism. You and I can't even imagine how important the temple was to first century Jews. And that verse that everybody skips says that he looked around at everything. The very next morning, when he walked to the fig tree, he looked it over. I don't doubt he made a big show of inspecting it. He was reenacting what he'd done the evening before at the temple. That's the reason Mark doesn't edit out verse 11. In both cases, Jesus was looking for fruit, and in neither case did he find any. The fig tree's time had come to an end, and the temple's was coming. What Jesus did at the fig tree, he did an hour later at the temple. He didn't explain all this. He acted it out just like an Old Testament prophet. When on the following morning, Peter called attention to the withered fig tree, even then, Jesus didn't give the disciples an explanation. He gave them a lesson. We want Jesus to give us explanations, but he wants to give us better lives. So, There are a few things in this message I I thought as I'm working on this, God wants to say this to somebody. This is one of them. If you have been spiritually stuck for a long time while you've been waiting for God to explain something to you why your child died, why your job fell through, why you had the parents that you have. Consider the possibility, just consider this, that it's not an explanation you need, it's God you need. He will give himself to you. And if you receive him, the day will come when you're ready for the explanation. Or the day may come when you don't need one anymore. The lesson Jesus taught was about prayer, particularly about faith and forgiveness. And that lesson is related to everything that's happening here, what we call the cleansing of the temple, everything. Moses had told people that when they came into the land, they must go to the place that God would show them to worship. That's Deuteronomy chapter 12. Solomon, on the day the temple was dedicated, prayed, Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, that is the temple. That's 1 Kings 8. But Jesus knows the time of the temple has come to an end, and the time of the Messiah has begun. God will still hear the supplication of his people and answer prayers, but it will not be prayers made in the temple, but prayers made in the name of Christ. Jesus talks to his friends about that kind of prayer. He begins by telling them this, verse 22, to have faith in God. Now, we read that and we think, well, duh, that's a given. But it's not. In fact, it's the place that most of us fail. We try to believe in the thing that we're praying for, but we'll never get any better at prayer than that. And by the way, did you know you can get better at prayer That's the way it works. You don't start off very good at it. But you can get better and better. We need to start by believing in God. Now, there's a subtle and constant temptation to shift the object of faith from God to something else. That's the essence of idolatry, always. We trust we'll get what we need rather than trusting God. We believe in a plan of salvation rather than believing in the Savior. There's that subtle shift all the time. And in that way, we can be religious but never get to know God. And if that's the case, we'll never see answers to prayer. Not in any kind of consistent way. The person who prays and sees answers is the person who has faith in God. Now listen to this, here's the second thing I think people need. In the very same way, he or she has faith in a spouse or a friend or a boss or a parent, because that person has come to know God, what he's like, what he wants, how he does things, he or she can ask him with confidence about certain things and know that he's going to answer. You cannot have strong faith in someone you don't know. And that's not just true when it comes to your friends or people that you just meet on the street. It's also true of God. Now, imagine that today is your first day at Lockwood. You've never been here before. And after the service, say it's 12 o'clock, so you come to the 11 o'clock service. 12 o'clock, you go out to lunch, and we find ourselves standing at the restaurant waiting for a table. Karen and I are there. You're there. We're all waiting for a table. And so we ask you, would you like to join us for lunch? And you say, okay, sure, we'll do that. And then when lunch is over and they bring the check, I reach for my wallet, and I don't have it. By the way, this has happened to me. <laughs> so I sheepishly ask you if you can cover the check. I just met you today. but could, could you cover the check and look, I'll pay you back before the day's over. I'm going straight home, get my wallet, and I'm going to come to your house and pay you. Now, you may go ahead and pay and choose to believe me. Or I might be in the back doing dishes. I don't know. But even if you choose to believe me, your faith in me can't be very strong. How could it be? You don't know me. And it's that way with God. Because God is not like anyone else we know, we mistakenly assume that faith in him is unlike faith in other people. So we we get the idea that faith in him is religious, but faith in other people is personal. That idea is not only wrong, it's spiritually devastating. We cannot have a strong faith in anyone we don't know, and that includes God. Our faith in a person only grows as we interact with that person. And our knowledge of his or her faithfulness grows. Now, our first act of trust Like in the restaurant, you know. It might be based on someone else's knowledge. We see that in in John chapter 4 with the Samaritans. But trust only grows as personal knowledge grows. And if that happens, then like with the Samaritans, we'll be able to say, we no longer believe just because of what someone said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that God is a person. God is the person from whom all personhood comes. We're made in his image. He can and wants to be known and trusted as a person. Now, we'll never know all there is to know about God, who is infinite, but that shouldn't bother us. We will never know all there is to know about our closest friend or even ourselves. When it comes to knowing God, we will never know all, But we can know truly. And we must know if we're to pray in a way that receives answers. It is the people who know God who say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it'll be done for them. They're the ones and probably the only ones who can believe that what they say will happen. So faith in God is foundational to answered prayer. And knowledge of God is foundational to growing faith. There is another fundamental issue in play here. Forgiveness toward others. Faith toward God, forgiveness towards others. Both influence our prayers. Jesus said, and when you stand praying, this is verse 25, If you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, Jesus has just said, don't forget this. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. You can't do that unless you have faith in God, and you won't do that if you have unforgiveness toward a fellow Christian. The directive to forgive your brother is not some arbitrary command that Mark included here because he didn't know where else to put it. It's directly related to what Jesus has been saying all along. Harboring bitterness and unforgiveness will impede your ability to believe God. There's a psychological dimension to this. If I won't forgive, you who've done me some wrong, how can I believe that God will forgive me when I've done him countless wrongs? My view of God is inextricably linked to my knowledge of myself. But there's more going on here than that. This isn't just about psychology. It's about the very nature of faith. Faith is not like a switch I can turn on and off when I want It's more like a circuit. It's not just God and me, as if I'm on a dedicated line. It's God and me and you. And that means if my connection to you is broken by unforgiveness, my connection to God is affected. I cannot be faithless toward you and faithful toward him at the same time. I can't do it. It's impossible. Because St. Peter learned how this works from Jesus, he counseled husbands in his letter to lovingly relate to their wife so that, and I quote, nothing will hinder your prayers. He understood the circuit. If you're bitter and unforgiving, it's no surprise that your prayers are not being answered. It would be a huge surprise if they were. But, so here's the rub, right? Can you really forgive when the wrong was inexcusable and the person remains untrustworthy? That's the question. And the answer is yes, you can. In fact, you must. But how? That can just seem overwhelming. You need to understand the nature of forgiveness. We tell ourselves things that make forgiveness all but impossible to us. For example, we tell ourselves, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Well, of course he doesn't. If he deserved it, he wouldn't need to be forgiven. Forgiveness is for people who don't deserve it. We don't forgive because the other person deserves it. We don't forgive because of who they are. We forgive because of who we are. You say, what he did was inexcusable. Well, of course it was. If it was excusable, you could just excuse it. But as it is, you must forgive it. Mistakes can be excused. They don't need to be forgiven. But sins must be forgiven. They cannot be excused. God will never, through all eternity excuse even one of your sins. But through Jesus, he'll forgive them all. We tell ourselves, but I can't trust him. Okay, you can't trust him. But what does that have to do with it? You can forgive someone without trusting him. Forgiveness We get this mixed up all the time. Forgiveness cannot be earned. But trust must be. Just because you forgive someone does not mean you put yourself back in a position where you have to trust them. Let's say I loan you $300 today because you paid for my lunch last week. I'm loaning you $300 today. And, and you promised to pay me back when you get your next paycheck. But that day comes and goes, and you don't pay me back. So I call you. And, and you apologize profusely, and you go into this long explanation of how your car broke down, you had all this, these unexpected repairs to make and cost you all this money, but you will pay me back. If not this next week, the following week for sure. But you don't. So I call you again and I say, "Look, yeah, I'm not repaid the $300. So I'm I am just going to forgive the debt." And you say, "Really?" "Yes, I'm just going to forgive the debt. You're forgiven." You're forgiven, but that doesn't mean when you come back to me in 3 months asking to borrow $300 again that I'm obligated to give it to you. If I turn you down and you say, "But you said you forgave me." I would say, yes, I forgave you. You don't owe me anything. But what does that have to do with it? I don't trust you. You can forgive someone without putting yourself in a position where you have to trust them again. All of these things can get in the way of forgiveness. But the biggest hurdle I've seen is the idea that if I've really forgiven I have forgotten. And if I haven't forgotten, then I haven't really forgiven. I've heard this preached from the pulpit. But that is not true to life, and it's not true to the Bible. Forgiving someone can take only a moment. Forgetting can take a lifetime. And it may not even happen then. When God says, I will remember your sins no more, we mustn't think that our sin slipped his mind. He's not suffering amnesia. He's not some kind of heavenly dementia victim. It means that he chooses not to recall our sins to our harm. That's also what we do when we forgive. Doesn't mean the pain went away. Doesn't mean we've forgotten what happened. It means we choose not to recall it to that person's harm. We may not be able to forget, but we can choose not to remember in a way that hurts or punishes someone, with ourselves or with others. We must learn to do what Clara Barton, the founder of the American Red Cross, did. I love this story because it's so illustrative of what we need to do. She was at a social event, lots of people there. She was with a friend and the friend pointed out someone who in the past had treated her just terribly. And she tried to get Clara to talk about the offense, but Clara acted like she didn't remember. So her friend kept pressing her and said, you must remember. And Clara responded, no, I distinctly remember forgetting that. Forgiveness doesn't mean we've forgotten. It means we choose not to remember in a way intended to hurt the other person, even in our own minds. Okay. You know, I told you a riddle and didn't give you the answer. I left you hanging, right? So what always runs but never walks, often murmurs, never talks, has a bed but never sleeps, has a mouth but never eats? A river, yeah, okay. I gave you two keys right now to prayer. Faith, and we talked about faith is built on the knowledge of God. You have to know him. That's why we spent the last three months Memorizing scripture. It's why we're doing this emphasis right now on prayer. And forgiveness. Two keys. One of them may open a door for you into a fresh, fruitful relationship with God. Why don't you ask him about that right now? If he's spoken to you and there's something you need to do, would you talk to him about it? I'll give you a couple moments. Oh, God, you have forgiven us. And certainly not because we earned it or deserved it. By your grace, would you strengthen us to resolve to forgive those who've hurt us? and help us to endure in forgiveness, amen.